One more item. Here's something a lot of us have in common. Broken appliances. Broken air conditioner. Broken down heating system. Broken down washer dryer. Broken down refrigerator. And if you're a homeowner, you know just how expensive it is to get one of those things fixed, let alone what happens if more than one appliance breaks down at the same time. Well, if you're a homeowner, you can get all of your appliances on a warranty plan that guarantees protection for all of your home appliances in case they break down. And best of all, it will only cost you about a dollar a day. Call the Home Service Club at 800-264-3168, 800-264-3168. The call is free, and if you're one of the first 25 callers, your first month membership in the Home Service Club will also be free. Home Service Club, warranty plan, Guarantees protection for all of your appliances for less than a dollar a day. 800-264-3168. 800-264-3168. Miss the show? We have more than 500 hours of archived editions of TV Confidential available on demand as digital downloads. For more information, go to shop.tvconfidential.com. This portion of TV Confidential is sponsored by The Misadventures of Biffle and Schuster, the hilarious site-splitting new DVD available through Kino Lorber. Hi, this is Daphne Maxwell-Reed, and you are listening to TV Confidential. Roberts wants a reminder that the next edition of TV Confidential will air next week on this station at the usual time. Please join us for our annual holiday show. Meantime, as December 2020 marks the 40th anniversary of the death of John Lennon, we are rounding out this week's program by playing highlights of a conversation that originally aired in December 2010 with New York Times bestselling author Keith Elliott Greenberg. Keith's books include December 8th, 1980, The Day That John Lennon Died, a fascinating and very insightful book that not only provides a minute-by-minute account of the last day of John Lennon's life, but is also a moving tribute to John Lennon's life as a whole and his impact on the world in general. The publisher of December 8, 1980 is Backbeat Books. If I remember correctly, you you never had a chance to meet John, correct? I did not, no. But uh, but but as you mentioned, you talked to vir- you talked to virtually every person behind the scenes of uh, on December 8th, 1980. And as many as I could get to. Yes. Yeah. And and like a good journalist, uh, you you poured through pretty much every every major interview that uh, that John did, including the Tom Snyder interview from 75, the Playboy interview that he gave. Uh, in 1980, as well as the RKO radio interview with Dave Sholin that he gave on the on the last day of his life, was there any one comment or one one interview that John gave that you learned that you particularly learned a lot from? Well, I actually think that um, I learned a little bit from all of them. I think when you're reporting, you gain insights uh, from a number of sources, and then you know consider the information in a cumulative way. Um, and I think that's also true with my, you know, what I read about Mark David Chapman. 
I read interviews that he did, but I also gleaned a lot from the uh, parole hearings uh, that he had, because every two years he comes up for parole, right. and he always makes the statement. And then the next day, there's a little item in the newspaper, Mark David Chapman's parole denied, and there's a quote or two from Mark David Chapman. But in reading those transcripts of all of those statements from year after year after year, you really get a sense of his mindset. Do you remember what you were doing on December 8th, 1980? Sure. Do you? Um, I think I was watching Monday night. I mean, I was living in, um, I was living in Northern California at the, at the time, and I believe I was watching the Monday night football game, so I remember Howard Cosell's cut-in. Right. Howard Cosell came in and told people that John Lennon had been shot and right. killed in New York. Um, I was with some friends. It was a very typical night. I was 21 years old. I graduated college actually in December 1980, but I was living at home, go, uh, commuting to school. And um, we were going to go out for the night, and we didn't have 24-hour news in that section of Queens, New York. And so uh, my, my friend, the late Dave Becker, turned on the news at 11 o'clock just to make sure we weren't missing anything significantly. The joke would be like, I just want to make sure we're not at war. And sure enough, there was the report that John Lennon had been shot. Yeah. Um, did you attend the, uh, the vigil in Central Park? I did. I actually did. And it's funny, I, you know, once I found out that John Lennon had been killed in my memory, the, um, it, the next couple of days are a blur. I mm -hmm. mean, I obviously continued going to school. I remember having a conversation with my friend Vic Deglio, who's still my friend, in, a, in the cafeteria about it. And um, I remember I put a button of John Lennon up on the rearview mirror of my car. And um, then the next thing that's really clear to me is standing there in Central Park with 100,000 other people at the memorial. As I mentioned, I grew up in uh, Northern California. Specifically, I grew up in San Francisco. And the, the, the closest equivalent to, um, you know, for me, was a couple of years earlier when Harvey Milk was killed. Mm. And I was not uh, there at the actual overnight vigils, but I, I, remember, I remember how, you know, his death just, I mean, I mean, how, how the entire city was in, you know, was uh, was in grief, not only because Milk was killed, but because uh, Mayor George Moscone, who was a very popular mayor at the time, was also killed. So you had that double whammy. So in that, right, that, it's, it's almost like like the Harvey Milk and George Moscone killing is a smaller version of the John Lennon killing. Because I remember being in San Francisco around that time mm -hmm. and noting how the whole city was swept up in the, in the grieving for that, and, and just the bewilderment, the confusion. How could this possibly happen, uh, particularly because uh, the killer was a city council member, if I'm correct? That is correct. And, and then, you know, John Lennon, it, the effect was international. It went all over the world. But I think it was the same kind of shock, just on a much larger scale. Right. I mean, and um, uh, like Lennon, Milk was a very visible member of his community. I mean, he, uh, he, held, uh, he ran a camera shop before he went into politics, and it was the type of place that people would walk in at virtually any hour of the day. He was very accessible, you know, just as John Lennon was, uh, and very publicly so, as he, as he talked about uh, you know, in, in the Tom, Schne uh, Tom Snyder interview and also on the RKO interview. Lennon was very public about you know, walking the streets and talking to fans in front of his building. Yes, that's right. And John Lennon. And, you know, we, when, I, when I started to do the book, 
people began to tell me all these little funny stories about their encounters with John Lennon. And not just people who were famous or people who had a direct role in the story, but just regular New Yorkers. And one story that stands out from a friend of mine was uh, somebody walking through Central Park and him seeing John Lennon, and John Lennon had his hands in his pocket. And he said, hey, John, I want to shake your hand. And John said, um, I would if you could help me find my hand. And the guy <laughs> laughed, and Lennon laughed. Now, Lennon probably was approached all day long, yeah. saying, hey, man, I want to shake your hand. And if you were a schmuck, you'd say, you know what, man? I have my hands in my pocket. <laughs> it's, it's cold outside. Can you just leave me alone? Yeah. But it said Lennon made it into a joke, and it turned out to be a positive experience for this guy who's still telling the story. We're talking. You, 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 you're given uh, just a picture of of Lennon's you know, personality and, and his sense of humor. I, I recently watched the the Snyder interview myself, and the biggest impression I had, aside from the from the ugly green chair and Tom Snyder's leisure suit, was just the playfulness of Lennon. Um, you know, just kind of looking aside and say, "Oh, that, that's what I look. At, that's what I look like." Profile. Um, or, or, or just just some of the things that he made, not realizing that they were actually rolling. I mean, I think of what my friend Dave Sholin said when, when he recalled interviewing him in, in his apartment on the day he died. Lennon seemed to, seemed to be the most at-ease person, one of the most at-ease people he had ever met in the music industry. And yet, John was kind of an interesting dichotomy because on the, on the one hand, he, he seemed to be in a, in a very good space in his life, at, at at age 40. Right, and he was. And and yet he was, I don't know whether obsessed with death um, uh, is the right word, but he was I certainly... I don't know if the word obsessed, but he certainly would bring the topic up regularly. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think there's a reason for that. What do you think that is? Well, I think, you know, you, you know this comes up a lot in conversation. I think you look at his history. I mean, and, you know, I mentioned a friend of mine who passed away actually at age 40 as well. Um, his and like John Lennon, this guy's mother had died, and when his biological mother, when he was very young, and I think when you lose somebody that young, um, it stays with you. Now, Paul McCartney's mother also died when he was a teenager, and I think John Lennon and Paul McCartney shared that. But Paul McCartney, at least publicly, seems to avoid the fixation with death. Although, you know, he named one of his daughters Mary after his mother. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he says, when I find myself in times of trouble, Mother right. Mary comes to me. Is he talking about marijuana or is he talking <laughs> about his mother? Um, you know, clearly Paul's mother has stayed with him. Right. But it seemed perhaps to be in a healthier way than, than John. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. How important was being a father uh, to John? I think it was extremely important. Um, John had, um, you know, done a very poor job in raising Julian. Julian ended up being extremely resentful of his father until recently. John's first wife, Cynthia, had just given birth to Julian when Beatlemania hit, and John was just swept up in it, and it took him far, far away from his son. And uh, Julian spent a lot of his childhood feeling very lonely and very isolated from his father. And uh, John didn't want to make that mistake again. John had been abandoned by his own father, and I think it, it hurt him that he repeated the sins of the past with his own son. And he wasn't going to do with his second son. And he worked very hard to ensure that his youngest son, Sean, feel that his father was with him all the time. And he was. 
He was with him every single day. He wrote the song Beautiful Boy mm -hmm. about himself envisioning Sean growing up. And from what everybody tells me, uh, Sean is not only a really nice guy, but an extremely well-adjusted one. You, you mentioned earlier you never had a chance to meet John, but if I remember correctly, in a previous interview, you mentioned that, like so many children of baby, of, of baby boomers, you, you remember watching uh, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and, yes. and, and there was something about John that you always liked. Yes, um, John was actually the uh, cynical one, and I guess he was a little bit alienated, and I found that relatable. You know, here he was, he was a guy who looked at what was around him with a jaundiced eye, and said, well, maybe everything's not as it seems. Maybe I don't have to follow the path that everybody's on. And, um, you know, I'm a little bit different than everybody else. And I, I certainly relate to that side of him. I thought, hey, I kind of look at things a little bit cynically as well. Um, I don't buy into the parade that I see my peers buying into. And so, in a way, John was a bit of a hero to me. Yeah, well, it goes back to what we were talking about uh, before, Keith. I mean, he was... He was always he was smart and uh, he he had um, he had a nuanced perspective about things and that he he wasn't afraid to say look we're we're grateful that so many people buy our records and want to see and, and want to hear our music but you know let's let's keep things in perspective we're just playing music right now right I think that's very true and you know that's something John even said to his fans you know that that one fan who talked his way into John's apartment and you know John after his initial outrage, kind of befriended the guy, and he would take walks with him, and when the guy would ask him too many Beatles questions, John would say, hey man, you know, forget about the Beatles. Talk about yourself. What's going on with you? So, you know, he, he wasn't so full of himself that he wanted the conversation to always center around him, or at least he attempted to temper the narcissism that goes with being that prominent a celebrity. Uh, just a couple more questions, if I may. Um, you, you mentioned John's interaction with the fans, and we talked before about, you know, John was very open about where he lived, and it, it was not difficult for people to find him. Um, that's changed a lot. Um, uh, that, 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 that's changed a lot um, in the last 30 years. Celebrities have become a little more... Uh, guarded. Yeah, very much guarded, and... You know the the idea that you know, people can stalk them is, is is something they're always mindful of. But you make an interesting uh, point that I'd like you to discuss with our readers. Um, is that while while it's understandable that you know s certain celebrities would take precaution if you if if you're writing music and you're supposedly writing about ordinary people, it's kind of hard to write about ordinary people if you're cutting yourself off from the public. Yeah, I'm that that's very true. That's very true, and I think that's one of the uh, you know, quandaries of fame. You know, the more famous you become, the more out of touch you are. And I think politicians face the same thing, and they're called on it constantly when they don't know about, you know, basic struggles that people endure day after day. And, uh, you know, I think, like, you hear stories about Bruce Springsteen showing up at some, you know, tavern in New Jersey or showing up at a, you know, a roll, an ice skating rink somewhere. And uh, that may be his effort to kind of understand the people who he's writing about so he isn't so removed from them. What can we learn from the death of John Lennon, Keith? Well, I don't know if we learn anything from the death of John Lennon. I think there's a lot of questions that we ask uh, related to the death of John Lennon. The most significant one is how would pop culture have changed had John Lennon lived? 
Uh, think about the music he would have created. Uh, would there have been a Beatle reunion? Probably. Uh, Paul McCartney, um, you know, is was supposed to play at the Apollo Theater on Monday, December thirteenth. Uh, uh, can you imagine uh, John Lennon jumping up on stage with him? It would have been pretty spectacular. Well, let me let me let me put it this way: Why is it important that we remember the death of John Lennon? Well, I think it's important to remember John Lennon as somebody who had a, who tried to use his fame as a pop star to make change and to advocate for peace. And he may not have always been right. His methods may have been outrageous. But you have to admire someone who, instead of just basking in their celebrity, wanted to make a change for regular people. And in that way, he was a, a true working man's hero. December 8th. 1980, the day John Lennon died by Keith Elliott. Greenberg is available wherever books are sold through Backbeat Books. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. If you haven't been listening to TV Confidential, this is who you're missing. Don Wells. Eric Braden. Jansen Williams. Roy Finnis. Peter Borchel. Lindsay Wagner. Loretta Sweat. Ben Asner. A lovely, enchanting interview. It's all the information. It wasn't an interview. Well, thank you. That's that's what I try to do. That's what I I try to make this a conversation. You made it. That's TV Confidential every week on this station and every day online at televisionconfidential.com. The old way of living with diabetes is a pain. You've got to remember to do your testing, and you always need to be sticking your fingers. The new way to live your life with diabetes is with a continuous glucose monitor. You simply apply a discreet, easy-to-use sensor on your body, and it continuously monitors your glucose levels, helping you spend more time in range and freeing you from painful finger pricks. If you test your blood sugar at least four times per day and inject insulin at least three times per day, or use an insulin pump and have private insurance or Medicare, you might be eligible for a CGM with little or no cost to you. Call U.S. Medical Supply today for a free benefits check. We offer free shipping, 90-day supplies, and we bill Medicare or your insurance directly. Call now and say goodbye to finger pricks. 800-826-5884. 800-826-5884. 800-826-5884. That's 800-826-5884. Alexa users, you can now listen to TV Confidential on your smart speaker by just saying, Alexa, play TV Confidential. Enabling our Alexa skill is easy. To find out how, go to televisionconfidential.com slash Alexa. 45 Years of the Rockford Files, revised third edition. The complete history of the Rockford Files on television, now completely updated with more than 20 new interviews, additional photographs, and a whole lot more. 45 Years of the Rockford Files, available now at rockford45.com, rockford45.com. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty Group, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay Area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you. Hi, everybody. This is Ruta Lee, and you're listening to TV Confidential. Ed Robertson with a reminder that Paul Robert Coyle's memoir, Sword, Starships, and Superheroes from Star Trek to Xena to Hercules, a TV writer's life script in the stories of heroes is available through our friends at Jacobs Brown 
Media Group, as well as Amazon.com and other online retailers. Also a reminder that Hank Garrett's memoir, From Harlem Hoodlum to Hollywood Heavyweight, is available from Britain Publishing, B-R-I-T-O-N. You can also find it at Amazon.com, as well as other online retailers. If you order the book from Amazon.com, type in Hank Garrett, From Harlem Hoodlum to Hollywood Heavyweight. It'll take you right to where you can order the book from Amazon proceeds from the sales of From Harlem Hoodlum to Hollywood Heavyweight will support disabled veterans and wounded warriors of America. That'll do it for our program this week, folks. Ed Robertson, Baffa, Tony Figueroa, Donna Allen, Phil Grice, and Greg Erebar. Thank you so much for listening. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll talk to you next time on TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411. Or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.